Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I am doing great because I am talking today to Dr. Melanie Jones, who is here to kind of break down what is colloquially referred to as the Wood Wide Web, and we're going to discuss how much of it is actually supported by science. I know many of you will be familiar with this term or some portion of this story of trees sharing and caring for each other in this wonderful kumbaya cooperative all through mycorrhizal networks in the soil. Well, when you look at the science, the story is not that straightforward. And in fact, a lot of what is sort of perpetuated in the media really isn't supported. But Dr. Jones is really good at explaining all of this. She studies mycorrhizal networks and has done for many, many years. She is the perfect person to sit down and talk to you about this. But before we get to that, I just want to say, if you're enjoying conversations like this, they cannot happen without your support. There's a lot of ways to support this show. One of the best is to pick up some of our customizable merch. You can find the links to that over at indefensiveplants.com. Just look in the show notes or click on apparel at the top of the screen. They're customizable designs, so you can always find a style that fits you. And again, it helps keep this show up and running. But that is entirely enough for me. I don't want to keep you from this important conversation because it really shines a light on how even scientists can fall victim to really seductive stories. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Melanie Jones. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Melanie Jones, welcome to the podcast. It is an honor to have you here. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you about this topic today, but for those that aren't familiar with your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. My name is Melanie Jones, and I'm a professor of biology at the University of British Columbia campus that's in the Okanagan Valley. But that's a beautiful area. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty nice place to be able to hang out, that's for sure. Nice. Yeah, so um my research really uh starting with my my PhD has been on mycorrhizal associations and just for some of your listeners that may not know what that is, um pretty well all plants. There's there's very few exceptions. There are some exceptions, but say 90% <laughs> of plant species form a symbiosis between their roots and fungi. And so when you dig up roots and you're looking at some white things and and you think they're just plant material, there's actually fungi there as well. And it is generally it's a symbiosis. So they live together. The fun fungal cells grow inside the roots. And um, it's generally considered to be a mutualism, which means that both of the partners benefit. So what the fungi do for the plants is they, they send their sort of thread-like cells called hyphae out into the soil. And the fungi can take up nutrients that the roots can't get to, mm. either because of they're in a a form that have to be broken down, just like we're, we're used to fungi being decomposers. They do that really well so they can break down organic matter, whereas roots generally don't do that very well. Or because they're, they're you know, in a small little spot or they're a long way away from the root and the fungi can run out there and take up the nutrients and, and bring them back. And then the fungi, they, they live on sugars, they're, they're heterotrophs, they don't photosynthesize. And so um, they get to 
uh, use some of the the sugars that the plants will send down to the roots. I... So it's generally mutually beneficial, but like all of these things, there's exceptions and cheaters <laughs> and things like that. But I've just loved studying mycorrhizal associations. They're they're absolutely fascinating. Indeed they are. And yeah, I mean, this is a plant podcast. We could not talk about plants long-term without bringing this up at some point or another. And a few people have come on in the past to talk about it in some forms. But where did this begin? I mean, fungi is a huge world. Plants are a huge world. And mutualisms, just on the theoretical perspective, is a huge world. So how did you find your way to working with mycorrhizal fungi? Yeah, that's a really great question. So, you know, when I was a kid... I remember in in grade seven that um, we all had to file into the career counselor's office and and say what we were interested in for a career. And so I said I wanted to be a lichenologist. (laughs) And uh, I think I, uh, you know, shocked the the person that was asking me the question. But I sometimes look back and think, well, it wasn't the lichen symbiosis, but it was (laughs) microbiome. Um, but but to be a little more clear, I think what got me there was in my latter part of my undergraduate of university, I became really interested in restoration of degraded ecosystems, mm. um, especially really bad things like mine spoils yeah. and, and stuff like that. And I hadn't really thought about how important soil microbes were to that whole Piece hmm. and so one of, one of my profs talked about that, and we um, I ended up doing my honors project on that because you need the soil microorganisms to break down the plant litter, of course, to release the nutrients. You can't just throw a whole bunch of seeds on a coal mine spoil or something <laughs> like that. We, so plants can't exist without the soil microbes. So that was kind of my my lead in. And then I ended up doing my my PhD in Toronto, looking at an interesting system where um, it was an old ore roasting bed from the 1920s where they had sort of cooked the um, copper and nickel ore prior to more modern day smelters. Hmm. So the whole area was totally contaminated with really high toxic levels of copper and nickel. But there were birch trees growing there, hmm. only birch trees. Those were the only plants. And there were mushrooms that came up beside huh. the birch trees that were mycorrhizal fungi. And so um, my PhD thesis was on whether or not being having this ectomycorrhizal association where the, the sheath, there's a, a layer of fungus around the outside of, of each of the, the little feeder roots, whether or not that was somehow protecting these birch mm. from the copper and nickel. And it, it turned out that it it was in some cases, not all of the fungi, but some of them were doing that. Oh, wow. That, okay, I see the hook. I can see why this became a career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty neat. That is cool. And so you mentioned ectomycorrhizal fungi. Um, there are others too, right? And and why did you stick with the ectomycorrhizal world instead of the other one we're going to talk about? <laughs> uh, right, right. Yeah. So the as I said, the the ectomycorrhizae they're actually not they're they're not particularly common. I think about 25% of the vegetation cover would form ectomycorrhizae. They're they're found on conifer trees, um, mostly on woody plants. And 
Um, the the other uh, before I answer your question, I'll say the other type. Uh, the other really common type are called arbuscular mycorrhizae. They're much, much more common. Huh. About 80% of plant species form arbuscular mycorrhizae. And they're formed by a very, the arbusculars are formed by a very unique group of fungi that that's really all they do. Mm. And they're the ones that allowed plants, we think, plants to colonize land because huh. they were you know able to take up nutrients and and water from the soil the the it's kind of funny to say but the the methods and approaches for studying those two groups of associations are really different hmm. because um the ectomycorrhizal fungi they produce these nice mushrooms so <laughs> you can go collect a mushroom cut a little piece out of it and put it on a petri plate and and grow the mushroom in some cases. And then, you know, your experimental approaches in the lab are based on these, you know, these fungal cultures, whereas, and, but you have to, and they have to be kind of sterile. Whereas the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, until fairly recently, we couldn't culture them. Mm. You did everything based on these kind of big spores. And also at the time I started, most of the people who studied arbuscular mycorrhizae were in agriculture mm. because a lot of agricultural plants form arbuscular mycorrhizae. Whereas um, the people that studied ectos tended to be more forest ecologists. Ah. And I was a little, or in people interested in mushrooms. And I was a little bit more on that <laughs> side of things than on the agriculture side. Sure. That's a cool story, though. I love how people end up falling into things. It's not necessarily because this is the most interesting thing in the world. It's 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 context, right? <laughs> As everything is in ecology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and you know, I always say that to to students at university: don't make your mind up too soon <laughs> nice. about what you're interested in, because there are so many interesting things that you won't become aware of, <laughs> maybe at all, yeah. or you know the later stages of your university career. Oh, sure. And in ecology, please. I mean, every new question you have, you're like, okay, there's a million other things attached to this I have to try to figure out too. <laughs> right, right. So mutualisms, right? It's a beautiful story. It's an easy story to tell. It's one that you learn fairly early in your education, especially nowadays. People are talking about it more and more. But this brings up this idea of sharing. And, and we understand plants and mushrooms are exchanging. It's a mutual beneficial thing. And you can look at it cynically and call it selfish or share it, whatever you want to call it. They are exchanging. But when we start talking about mutualisms and sharing and especially shared mycorrhizal networks, you inevitably come across this concept of the wood wide web. It has seduced so much of the world. And uh, I connected with you today because you and your colleagues have pushed back very eloquently and in a very scientific way against some of these ideas. And so let's sort of start at the beginning. What is this concept of the wood wide web and why is it such a seductive idea before we start diving in? Right. Well, well, you know, the term wood wide web was actually coined by the journal Nature mm. when um, in, back in 1997, there was a, a really key paper um, that came out. And I was an author on that paper, <laughs> along with many others. And it was one of the, the first ones that, um, that indicated there could be carbon moving back and forth below ground between trees. Mm. And so the, I think at, at the beginning, the Wood Wide Web was just a splashy term to put on the cover of a journal, because if you think back to 1997, 
the World Wide Web um, had <laughs> sure. the internet Fair. had just come into existence. So it was an interesting play yeah. on words. Since then, uh, you know, I think it's really, I mean, I don't know if it's ever even really been defined, but I think most people would understand it to mean that, tr- especially in forests, that trees and forests, that their root systems are all connected by these fungal conduits and you know much like the internet there's there's stuff flowing here there and everywhere you know through these hyphal connections so the image seems to be of one giant interconnected system right. i mean that that's what that's what i take from the the wood wide web i like to use the word just because i'm a scientist <laughs> i like to refer to common mycorrhizal networks which have a very precise definition okay and it, it really just means when a mycorrhizal fungus has colonized one root and then it grows through the soil these little hyphal strands grow through the soil encounter the roots of another plant that it's compatible with and colonize that one and by doing that, it forms a physical connection mm. between the two root systems. And those two plants can be of the same species or different species, as long as they're compatible with that particular fungus. So that's uh, the the um, common mycorrhizal network. And that's what we were talking about in our paper. Because I, I find even the concept of the wood wide web, I've never seen it defined. Right. It's quite vague and so it's not something that i feel you could maybe critique even if you don't really know exactly what it was it is but we we did in the paper talk about the idea that um that seems to be out there that it over quite a big area trees are all interconnected by these these fungi and i i think that's what's usually meant by the wood wide web yeah i mean that's a, a safe assumption i think to fall back on uh, as people start to talk about it even in colloquial terms that's generally what they're getting at but it sounds like if i just understood you correctly it could be one species of fungus one technical individual of fungus connecting multiple different plants or different ectomycorrhizal fungi connecting different species of plants like there's a lot of complexity before we even get into like the interpretations of it right and, and just to kind of narrow it down to like oh it's the fungus just translate it's like which fungus where and how many what is going on under there yeah absolutely true and and certainly with ectomycorrhizal fungi in particular one of the things really neat that that i find is that the communities are so diverse hmm. even on a little tiny seedling that's you know a few weeks old you you can find four or five different ectomycorrhizal fungi on, on one big old tree wow. you know there, there'd be maybe even up to a hundred different ectomycorrhizal fungi so i think that is part you know when when this idea is displayed say on on little videos you know you can find little videos online about the wood wide web and they often show like one fungus coming out of one tree and spreading to another and another and another right. and it makes it look like we're just talking about one fungus but you're absolutely right there's a incredible diversity under there mm. And one of the things that we know is that some of these mycorrhizal fungi, they don't grow very far. Oh. 
Some do. Like that's that's why it's so important to be aware that there are, are lots of different ones. Some of them can grow over time and extend, you know, meters and meters, maybe tens of meters. Mm-hmm. And other ones that have been mapped, they don't they don't grow even to a meter in size. Huh. Wow. That blows my mind. But it makes sense though. I mean, underground is niche space, right? It's an n-dimensional niche volume. And fungi are different for some reasons, right? And whether we know them or not, you can imagine there's differences in what nutrients they're good at getting at, how far, like you said, they can spread, what plants they partner with. So it's it's almost doing it a huge disservice to simplify it to the degree that is, I mean, again, I get why you have to kind of do that sometimes, but there's so much more going on than we even realize. Absolutely. And of course, fungi are their own kingdom. So, I mean, you'd never assume all animals were the same. <laughs> size or doing the same thing right but of course this common mycorrhizal network idea has spread uh it's gone like wildfire through straw right and now we're talking about this this mutualism between the individual plant and whatever fungi is partnering with is they're exchanging material to oh my gosh this means forests are sharing with each other and you quickly see how over the decades and especially in recent ones this has gotten out of hand, in my opinion, with this idea that, oh, these trees are sharing with each other, they're protecting other trees that are unrelated or, you know, raising their children and it's, you know, quote unquote, so to speak. And it's really evolved uh, in in at least colloquial sense uh, since that original 1997 paper. Right, right. And I mean, I want to be clear that even though it's sort of gone off on a, on a, you know, quite a extraordinary path, that asking questions about common mycorrhizal networks is absolutely legitimate yes. and is an important area to study because they they're I mean we have observed these common mycorrhizal networks to form in the lab say over you know a 20 or 30 centimeter mm. just like about a foot you know we can watch them if we put two little plants between glass plates you can watch the hyphae grow from one to the next so we we know they're out there and in the forest they're there. We don't know how how long they last though. I mm. think that's one of the the big questions is okay, once this fungus has grown from one root system to the next, how long does that physical connection remain intact? Because we know there's lots of organisms in the soil, little springtails mm. and mites that that feed on that that fungi are their main food source. So, you know, it's very likely that those connections will get severed. And it doesn't mean that the fungus isn't still growing to the next tree and the next tree. And it it could even appear that because genetically you can find that individual occurring over a long distance. I think some of us jump to the conclusion that, oh, it's probably a continuous network. Right. Right. But um, it may not be. But sorry, I'm I'm getting a little off track. What I wanted to say is that I don't want to give the impression at all that um, we shouldn't be studying common mycorrhizal networks. Oh, right. We need to lo- know a lot more about them. How long do they last? And one of the things that I think is a really cool question, more so than you know what happens with one tree to another tree thinking about it from the point of view of the fungus. Mm. So you've got a fungus growing through the soil. It's connected to two different root systems. 
then it takes up some nutrients. It takes up some nitrogen, maybe. Well, where does it send it? Right. You know, if it has excess, does it send it to the closest root system? Does it send it to a, you know, is it a source sink if it's sort of, you know, uh, or does it send it to the tree that's sending it the most carbon? Ah. This is a, that that's a really active area of study. So um, as I said, this is a, it's a totally legitimate and important area to, to study. We need to know a lot more. And I think that was the bottom line of our, our paper that we published in Nature Ecology and Evolution is that the really fascinating, heartwarming story that's being told about common mycorrhizal networks, it's gotten ahead of the science. Right. Right. And, you know, one of the things that sometimes happens is um, science is slow. Progress in science <laughs> yeah. is incredibly slow. You need to do one study and then you need to repeat it in the same type of ecosystem. And then you need to do it in a different ecosystem in many places before you can start to generalize. And I think that maybe what has happened a little bit here is that, you know, there's been some exhaustion maybe you know we've been studying this for you know 25 years surely we've done enough yeah right, but right. you can't really do that you can't just say i'm tired yeah right uh, doing experiments you really need to wait until you have really strong um reproducible evidence right and again i agree with you i trust the peer review process i trust the scientific method we should be questioning these sorts of things, question everything, test it. But the hubris comes into the interpretation of, okay, like you said, we found a genetic individual here and it's way over here. It must be the same one. It must be sharing or, okay, we know that this radioactive isotope showed up here when we put it in the soil and it also showed up here. It's gotta be sharing. The trees are definitely doing that. And that's where I agree with you. I think the interpretations have gotten ahead of it because it's a seductive story. It's, really heartwarming. It's an easy story to tell. Uh, I went to uh, a workshop, an education workshop, and three scientists from big name institutions used the wood wide web and the sharing is this sort of like, look, we can cooperate. And I was like, we're not trees. We're not forests. We're entirely different orders of organisms, guys. Stop doing that. And it's amazing to me that even scientists, maybe not the ones studying it like yourself, but many scientists see this and go, well, it's it's everywhere. It must be true. No one's really spoken up against it. Although people have, it's just which story is the more enticing one you're going to tell your grandkids or something at the end of the day. <laughs> well, it, it is an example of where uh, after we published our paper, a number of even other scientists have said, oh, I'm really sad now because oh. I like that story. Uh, so we feel a bit badly about that but but i think to uh, to wash away that like we said at the beginning that the idea about mycorrhizal associations in general is a is a really interesting story of course they're both the fungus and the plant are subject to natural selection they're not just helping the tree out out of altruism sure you know the, the fungi are, are um, you know, feeding the tree, the tree are giving it carbon, but the fungi don't give the, the tree nutrients that they need themselves. They hang on to right. them first. Right. But still, you know, there's, there's lots of cool stories to tell. You know, these ectomycorrhizal fungi are the ones that 
produce chanterelles and mm. and uh, some of the the king bolites and some <laughs> of the mushrooms that we love to eat. You right. know, there's a lot lots of good stories to tell. Yeah, uh, you know, I can kind of on face value understand. Oh, I'm sad. This was a fun story. I'm. It's a bummer that the science doesn't support it. And we'll get to that in a second. But, you know, I'm with you as a science communicator. There's so many more interesting things going on that are real or beg the question. What what is going on that there's why aren't we telling those more often? Because as you started discussing, we don't even have a complete picture of what's going on under the soil. It is a really, really hard. My head is off to you. Studying underground processes is extremely difficult. And how many species involved? How far do they go? Like, these are all really exciting questions that are really cool stories in and of themselves. It's just you got to entice the people to want to tell the stories, those journalists that grab on to, oh, well, I need to make some commentary on human society. So Wood Wide Web. Yeah, let's run with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think on that note, I think that maybe what happened in this case, too, is because some of these ideas became popularized from books and podcasts and things like that that are not peer reviewed, um, the, I think the story got got spread wider and, um, you know, got picked up even by science journalists and that kind of thing. And I have the strong impression that scientists that, that are not necessarily mycorrhizal scientists, but maybe plant ecologists or uh, people that are in sort of related fields, that they assumed that there was strong scientific evidence for right. these claims that were being made, or otherwise they, they wouldn't be hearing them so much <laughs> over right, the media. Right. And, uh, and so, and then, you know, they can apply for money. And as you say, it becomes, it's sort of self-fulfilling Yeah, and it, it really got away from itself, I think. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, scientists are humans and humans are fallible organisms, right? And, and we can be seduced. And that's just, it is like, I'm a plant ecologist, but I study community assembly. I don't really have a good grasp on what's going on outside of that. I try to find the right answers. I like reading the science and synthesizing it, but unless you're in it day in and day out, it's really tough to really have a good grasp on the synthesis. And that's where work and, and popular articles, even like the ones that you wrote in Undark, were amazing because you are the scientists doing this sort of work. You understand the literature. And so let's talk about that, right? What, on a massive meta scale, like does the science really support this kumbaya, oh, look, everything's sharing and caring and altruism? I, I just don't buy it. Right. Yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't. You know, there's sort of a, a mixture of, we either just have such a tiny little bit of evidence that it's premature to say this is happening everywhere all the time. And um, and then in other cases, the evidence is really mixed. So I'll, and then in other cases, we have no evidence at all. <laughs> Great. So I'll talk about maybe the, the last two. The, sure. the Part of the story that I personally just think is important that we uncovered is the part where the impression is often given that a seedling planted near a big tree and in such a way that it can plug into a common mycorrhizal network and be connected to the big tree by these hyphae, that that's a good thing for the seedling. Mm. The seedlings will be able to grow better um, because there'll be some kind of resources like carbon or water or nutrients that will come from the big tree to the smaller tree. So the three of us really looked for every single study that we could find that had been done in forests 
looking at that. And what we found, um, we really read everything in great detail, including our own older papers. <laughs> and sometimes we're a bit shocked by Oops. what we said back then. <laughs> but anyway, just taking the, the results, though, what we found was you cannot generalize about that, that whether or not a seedling grew better or worse or the same, when it was in the treatment that would allow the, the network, it depended on which tree species, which soil type, where the seedling was planted mm -hmm. relative to the tree, um, whether or not the trees were in a, a stand that had been attacked by pine beetle, um, and how long the experiment ran for. So, you know, our minds were spinning at the end. There was no Oof. consensus, no generalization. And in fact, when we looked at the experiments that were really well controlled, and I can explain that a little bit more in a bit if, sure. if you want, um, what we found was that fewer than one in five of the really well-controlled studies showed a positive response of the seedlings to the this potential connection with the big tree that wasn't outweighed by a negative response from being close to the roots of the big tree. <laughs> right. So, you know, one in five and about equal number of times, it was actually a negative effect on the seedling. And then most right. of the time, it, it was just neutral. There was no effect at all. Right. Yeah, it's wild to me because even gardeners that understand spacing's an issue and root competition's a real thing will fall into this. And you're like, what world does this suddenly, do the rules change? And it is comforting to know that there is really no consensus on that. And I just talked to Dr. Annie Chung at UGA and, and her plant microbe, it was the same thing. It's context matters. The players matter. And we're forgetting that the world is full of fungi and full of plants. And to generalize across all of them is it's just wild to me that we even fell for that in the first place. And it is a bit scary because I know that in Europe, for example, there's, you know, some, um, you know, there's a bit of a push that, that no tree should be cut down at all. You know, right. there's some voices that are saying that, that we're going to disturb the fungi and, and that kind of thing. And, um, just to, yeah, to, to take these ideas and say this is something that is happening everywhere. It's definitely an example of cherry picking of results. Sure. You know, this is 18% of the time where you can say, yes, there was a, a positive response, but. Sure. And, you know, again, I can't believe as a indefensive plants, I'm saying this, but like, we're really forgetting the fungal perspective on this. And, you know, it's almost like the trees tap into the fungus and it's a passive player. It's like, oh, I've got a tube. You can send whatever you want through it. Right. And and to me, the network is all about the fungus getting resources. And of course, in some cases, it probably makes sense to keep all the trees alive in that network or, you know, pitch mm -hmm. in some nutrients so that you get as much carbon back as possible. I'm anthropomorphizing like crazy here, but bear with me. <laughs> uh, right. And so it, all of this is like, well, the trees are shaped. What about the fungus's role in all of this? Exactly. It does tend to get lost. And it is it is really frustrating as as somebody who is really interested in the, the fungal side of things. Right. Because yeah, they're they're under natural selection. And there, as I said before, there's a really big area of study where people are trying to figure out 
is this um can um, economic like market theory mm. apply to which fungi colonize which plants and how much carbon is sent to a particular root does it match how much phosphorus it's it, the fungus is giving or whatever and and again there's quite mixed results but this is a very active area who who recognizes who right. in terms of the fungus and the the plant and and that yeah. kind of thing but interestingly there's there's um, a couple of strong papers from Sweden that have indicated that um the fungus doesn't necessarily it doesn't it, it, the the plant needs the fungus but definitely mm. the fungus will hang on to nutrients if the nutrients are really short in short supply you know they'll keep enough for themselves and then send excess to the plants right right yeah i mean you kind of keep the evolutionary perspective in all of this too is an altruistic system i'm sorry i've never seen good evidence for it outside of kin selection and even then it's the selfish gene comes back into play <laughs> right Right. So what else did your meta-analysis, you mentioned there were some other uh, points you wanted to hit as well. Right. And and I should say this wasn't a meta-analysis in terms of um, a strict meta-analysis it has a statistical Oh, sure, sure, sure. My it. apologies. Yeah. So we just, it was a review. Right. Of the, a review. Of there we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the other part that we really wanted to dig into was the business of, um, where we've been told that the mycorrhizal fungi and the CMNs, the, the common mycorrhizal networks, can play a role in recognizing kin, mm. recognizing the offspring of the bigger tree, and actually preferentially send um, carbon or send warning signals of insect attack to those to those little seedlings and we searched high and low and we could not find a paper that had really looked at that whole picture huh. so is the network involved in recognizing the seedlings and there and also sending you know more resources or signals to those related offspring right so, but what we did find was some papers that it look, had looked at one part or the other. Okay. So we did find an uh, a thesis, an MSC thesis. So it um, has not been peer reviewed. Sure. But it was um, what this uh, really interesting study. What this student had done is um, taken a um, planted a bunch of related and unrelated seedlings around big Douglas fir trees. Really nicely replicated study around each big Douglas fir planted seedlings that were related to that tree or not related to that tree. And then um, imposed treatments that would allow a network, a mycorrhizal network to form or prevent a mycorrhizal network from forming. And what this and then looked at the growth and the survival of these seedlings. And what the student found, we were flabbergasted when we finally found the image, the figure in her thesis. She actually found that there was a strong tendency for the unrelated seedlings to survive better hmm. and grow better next to the big tree. Wow. It wasn't quite significantly different, sure. but you know, it was in that it wasn't the other way. Right. It wasn't that the related seedlings survived better was the unrelated seedlings survived and grew better. And then if we look at the treatment with the mycorrhizal networks, there was no effect 
of the mycorrhizal network at all. It had no role to play in whether or not the related offspring grew better or worse. So wow. that was a, a real shock when we we found that. Yeah, that's a that's alarming again because where did this come from and you got to ask like was it someone that you know i'm fine with spending a paragraph in the discussion waxing a little bit and, and saying well maybe we should look at this but you know was this something that truly journalists picked up on or some communicator picked up on and ran with a book that was written and and now we've got a lot of often professional people saying it yeah i really don't know i don't Oof. i don't know the answer to that that question. But the other part of that that I'll talk about, because it is, it has um, a stronger scientific basis, but it, it has a good moral to it. And that is that the business about sending warning signals of insect attack. Yeah. So it, the idea is that if one tree is attacked and it's connect by an insect and it's connected by a mycorrhizal network to another tree that it can sort of warn the other tree and the other tree can start to put up some chemical defenses early but right. you know preemptively before the insects attack it and this is said quite often too and so again we could find that this was a peer reviewed paper okay. published paper but it was done in the greenhouse on seedlings. Mm. So I think it's always important to keep that in mind that we can't, it's, it's good. It's a really good place to start, sure. but then, you know, you, you can't uh, translate that really easily to the forest, but fair enough. Okay. So what the experiment showed, they planted a Douglas fir and a ponderosa pine, and they had the Douglas fir being attacked by um, Western spruce budworm uh, and then they measured the um the enzyme responses in the ponderosa pine mm. and so what they found of course they had a they had a background level when the insect was there but there was no possibility of forming a, a mycorrhizal network okay so there was a baseline level there then they had a treatment where the mycorrhizal network could form but the roots of the two trees couldn't sort of grow together, couldn't intermingle. They were stopped by a mesh. There was a, a fine mesh that the hyphae could grow through, but the roots could not. Okay. And absolutely, there was a statistically significantly higher enzyme production in the ponderosa pine compared to that background when the network was allowed to form. Really fascinating results. And I'm sure that's the basis of these sort of warning, um, these claims that right. one tree can warn another through the network. But there was a third treatment that is usually not mentioned. And that's a really important control. The scientists did it. And that was where not only could this network form, but the roots could intermingle as well. So there was no barrier there at all. Um, and in that case, the the enzyme levels in the pine went right back to background. Huh. So our argument is that, boy, these are cool results that need to be followed up but way premature to say this happens in a forest sure. because in a forest, there are no barriers there that allow hyphae but not roots. Wherever you have a common mycorrhizal network, you have the roots growing together. They have to be pretty close together in order for the hyphae to reach from one to the other. Right. 
Yeah, it's talk about cherry picking. And again, it's it's picking the results that kind of favor a concept that you're trying to, you know, an axe to grind, so to speak, rather than looking at the holistic picture and going, wow, that's interesting. We really need to explore this more. What could this mean? I mean, I'm even fine with saying, what could this mean? Because you can wax and, and wane on whatever sort of theories, but boy, I want to see some strong science to back it up if you're going to say this is what's happening. Yeah, that was one of our biggest concerns as part of our original paper in Nature Ecology and Evolution. Um, we had done an analysis of how scientists cited earlier work. How did they refer to earlier work that had been published on common mycorrhizal networks? And it was really quite concerning. And it was obvious that we scientists were part of the problem. Right. You know, when you brought up bias, what we found was that if we look at, um, say, the way people would um, say the, the most the most egregious example is some of this mapping that we talked about earlier, this genetic mapping where you can see how far a fungus has spread a mycorrhizal fungus and how many trees it associates with. There's a really key paper that's often cited by Kevin Byler. And um, that paper is now often being cited as showing that nutrients move through the web. Hmm. That wasn't even part of the study. Oof. So what we think is maybe happening is that a little bit like a game of telephone where, you know, the first person read the paper and cited it and then, Somebody cited that paper and it goes on and on and on. And after sort of four or five transmissions, people are getting lazy and they're not going back and reading the original paper. And they're accepting that, you know, the error that one, they're basically promulgating an error in citation. Yeah. And I think this is this is made worse by the fact that people in other fields like sociology and economics and and politics, they're now interested in the idea, the these sort of the wood wide web kind of idea and saying, oh, maybe we should organize businesses like this. And they they cite the forest. So I understand that those people cannot go back and evaluate the original science. Right. That that can't happen. And so when we as mycorrhizal scientists become sloppy and you know maybe we like we i i have to admit having been involved in some of that that earliest work back in 1997 we got so excited by those results yeah. that we highlighted the idea of the what we found was that the carbon moved from one tree to an, uh, between both trees back and forth um, with more being uh, moving from one tree to the other if the second tree was shaded. Mm. And so and there there were there were bits of evidence that would be consistent with the idea <laughs> that it moved through the hyphae. Sure. And so because it was consistent with that idea, that was the message that we hit. You know, with, that we hit home in, in our paper, we mentioned the other ones, mm -hmm. mentioned these other possibilities that it could have moved through the soil, but we highlighted the idea of it moving through the hyphae. And looking back at that, you know, it, it was the very first paper, so maybe we could be forgiven. But really, we, you know, the the way that science is supposed to work is that once you get 
evidence that's consistent with your idea, you need to repeat it. Right. You need to repeat those studies. And, and you know, there, there were repetitions of that, but that's where some of the results of the subsequent studies were a bit borderline, mm-hmm. you know, not quite significantly different, or, you know, you sort of had to twist things to, to match that narrative of the movement moving through the, the fungi. Yeah. And so, um, I think the the problem is that we sometimes in in science especially in academia I think these days we are getting rewarded by publishing brand new ideas evidence for brand new ideas that then get published in high profile journals and that way you get tenure you get to keep your job and you don't really get rewarded for going back and repeating studies that other people have done to see whether or not right. you can find the same thing in a different ecosystem. Right. And that's what really needs to be done. Agreed. Thank you so much for spelling that out so well, because it is tough. Uh, you don't want to cause more distrust in science than there already is out there. But like you said, if it's the first paper and you put it out there, sure, then go test it, right? Repeat it. But when it comes to, I again, I trust the peer review process and the scientific method. I don't always trust the culture of publisher parish or academia and, and as a whole because, yes, it is how many citations you get. Where you know, we hear it all the time as grassroots. What's the novel point here? What's what's the novelty? What's the narrative here that you're trying to? I'm just trying to show you what my data show you, and and it's a shame that it's gotten to that point. But you know, that's economics, and unfortunately, this is what comes out the other end. Is yeah you got to publish, right? And sometimes you just need that one citation to get that sentence through the process. It might not be the thing you're hinging on, but you know, we've all probably had those moments where like, ah, just grab it. It was there before. So it must be, but that's again, that's sloppy. And that's where you have to go. No, read it, read it. There's always time to read it. Exactly. Or that might've been the main message that the authors wanted you to take home. But unfortunately, what tends to get left out as we cite papers over and over again, is the stuff in the discussion where the authors talk about, okay, these are alternative explanations. Right. You know, we like this idea, right. but just so you know, <laughs> you know, it could, another explanation could be it's moving through the soil or some of the other things that we found out afterwards where, you know, we hadn't thought about what about the pathogenic fungi? Oof. We're influenced by putting these barriers, you know, we're not only influencing mycorrhizal fungi by pathogenic fungi. And uh, Justine Karst, one of the, my co-authors, um, one of her papers, she thought, holy smokes, that could have explained all of my results. It could have been due to the pathogens, not to a common mycorrhizal network at all. But, you know, this is the other thing that it's hard, as you said earlier, Matt, we're human. Right. And so as much as we try to open our minds to all of the other possibilities uh, that could explain our results, you can't think of them all. Right. And um, all three of us, thought of new alternative explanations for our earlier results that we had not even considered Dang. before. But but that's just how science works. Exactly. You know, like again, you know, to to make this pop, this is not a bad thing. Yeah. This is what happens in all sorts of fields of science that, you know, every 10 years, every 20 years, you sort of sit back, take stock, look at all of the work that's been published since, and go back and review some of your main theories. Right. Um, 
you know, I'm not a physicist, but I understand there's a lot of people that question the Big Bang. Right. Well, we all kind of think about, okay, the Big Bang theory, that's how the universe was formed. But I know there are people out there that yeah. say, oh, you know, there's lots of evidence that that doesn't quite jive with that. So it's that kind of thing. We need to be willing to go back and even if it's our own studies where we were quite strong about saying, okay, we think this is happening. You always have to reevaluate based on newer evidence. And, and again, we don't, you know, most of the original, if you read the original papers, they were done very well. Right. And they talked about these alternative explanations. It's just that they, this seems to have been lost, especially in the public narrative now. Agreed. And thank you. Again, you know, science may be flawed because humans are flawed, but there is always a greater percentage of scientists that are looking to self-correct and always check themselves and go back and revisit. We just got to allow that to happen, both in the culture of academia, but also in the culture of how we talk about this stuff. It's not bad to double back on something you said and say, hey, new evidence, I've changed my mind, or hey, this supports it or doesn't support it. That's part of it, or at least it should be. So thank you again for doing that, even to yourself, because that's most, there's a lot of egos out there that would never try that. <laughs> it was hard. It, I think all three of us found it hard to just realize uh, the, that we had been blind in some ways. Well, again, the self-correction mechanisms are working in you and your colleagues, and I thank you all for doing it. And again, I also support the scientists that are putting that out there. Like you said, the science is good. The interpretations need a lot of work. And, you know, maybe we don't jump the gun just to tell a good story. We say, hey, there's a lot of cool things out there, but there's also more mystery. And that is also very exciting. It is very exciting. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Jones, thank you so much. I don't want to take up any more of your time, but uh, I really appreciate you telling us about this. I appreciate all the effort you're doing to correct the science and tell the more interesting story, in my opinion. If people want to find out more about your work, where do you recommend they go looking? Well, I think Google Scholar is a place that is accessible by everybody. So just look up my name, Melanie Jones, and you can see the other papers that I've published. And you can see lots of other good papers on on mycorrhizal networks in, in that by that. Wonderful. Dr. Jones, again, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for doing everything that you're doing to make science great. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, keep it up. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you, Matt. Of course. Cheers. All right. Fascinating and cautionary tales for how much we want to take on face value, especially when it's coming through journalists and the media. As a podcaster myself and someone who has written a book, I could say anything I want. I try not to. I try to do it by the scientific method and tell stories that the data support, but not everyone follows those guidelines. And sometimes the most seductive stories aren't true or at least aren't supported by good science. I thank Dr. Jones for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk to us about this. And of course, I can put all of the relevant links for everything we talked about in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. While you're over there, look at all of the different ways you can support the show because I couldn't be doing this without support. You can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, and stickers. You can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. In fact, speaking of my book, the Wood Wide Web is a topic I tackle in my chapter on plant interactions. So go check that out as well if you want to hear my thoughts on the subject, independent of what Dr. Jones has talked to us about today. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. As always, hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.